0: Uh, Today will be a little different. It will be out of John chapter 9. In fact, we will study the entire chapter today in John chapter 9. If you have a Bible, please, if you don't, there's one nearby, I'm sure. It would be very helpful to you, I believe, if you uh, have a Bible open in front of you. In fact, it's a great encouragement to a pastor that as he begins his time in the pulpit, it's met with the sound of rustling pages from the congregation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin this morning. Dear Heavenly Father. Open the hearts, Father, of those who would listen so that they would see and hear from you and not from a man. And, Father, do the work that only your word can do in the hearts of those who have ears to hear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Probably few of you would recognize this name. A man by the name of George Shearing. Some of the band members, maybe the older band members. I'm not pointing to anybody. but. He was actually an American jazz pianist and composer. He was fairly well known in his day, which was the earliest half of the 20th century. He had a unique quality though. He was born blind. So much like Ray Charles, his his music transcended his physical limitation. And there's a story of him one day in Manhattan as he was walking through the streets of Manhattan. It was busy, it was rush hour. And he found himself at a busy intersection and he was afraid to cross for obvious reasons and he was waiting for someone to come along and note that he was blind, take notice of him and offer to help him cross, help him guide across the street. Well, as he was waiting at this busy intersection, he had another gentleman come up from behind tap him on the shoulder. And of course, he turns around expecting that this person is going to offer to help, but unfortunately, it was another blind man seeking his help to cross <laughs> the street, not knowing, of course, that George himself was blind. So what did he do? Well, as he tells the story, he says, what else could I do? He said, I took him across. <laughs> he says it was the biggest and, and most thrilling 30 seconds of his entire life. You talk about the blind leading the blind. I mean, that's got to be the quintessential example of the blind leading the blind. And it led me to think, as I heard that story at one point, it led me to think, what is it really like to be born blind? How Can we ever really imagine what it must be like to live your entire life without ever having seen anything? And even more difficult to imagine than that, perhaps, is what would it be like to be made able to see after having been blind since birth. Boy, can, the moment that, that, I mean, the rush of emotions and all that must have happened in the mind of someone who could see after so long of living in a world that was completely dark. It must be just an amazing moment. It must just transcend any kind of understanding we could bring to it. Well, we can get, we get an opportunity this morning in John chapter 9 to actually get a glimpse of what that really is like. Not just for the man in the story this morning, but for ourselves as well. Jesus' ministry and his power and his authority were frequently demonstrated through his healing miracles. And we'll see one of those here this morning, which is very different, I might add, from the Aggie faith healer. Have you ever heard the story about the Aggie faith healer? He was renowned for his ability to make a blind man lame. Let's all pause for a moment to let the Aggies get the joke. It's a good thing I'm just interim pastor. Well, if I hadn't been, I would be now, wouldn't I? (laughs) Let's go into the Gospel of John, chapter 9. We'll open with verses 1 through 5. Read along with me. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus and his disciples were told, come upon this man who was born blind and is sitting by the side of the road. And as Jesus passes by, they ask him this very interesting question, really. Frankly, it's a question that included two proposed answers on their part. They ask him, what did this man do that he would be born blind or more specifically why was he born blind that's a question we don't often ask ourselves is it unless of course we're thinking from a medical point of view what caused the blindness in other words that's not their question and that's obvious by the way they propose to the answer they say was it because he did something wrong or was it because his parents did something wrong now the first answer they proposed was it that his parents did something wrong you and i might look at that and think that was the stranger of the two possible answers. I mean, who in their right mind would think that you're born blind because of your parents' mistakes, right? Well, in fact, that was actually the most reasonable answer because it was actually according to a verse they knew in their law out of Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Those verses stayed in part that God is prepared to visit the iniquity of the fathers onto the children and onto the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. It was a very specific comment in the law. It had to deal with a very specific issue. It's not a guarantee. It wasn't meant in that way. But yet, the way to become interpreted, the way to become known within the Jewish culture and within pharisaical leadership was to say that if you did something wrong, you could assure that your children would be cursed in some sense or would see God's uh, visiting of that iniquity on them. And it came out in their minds in a variety of ways to include things like blindness. In other words, the Pharisees had come to believe That when someone was blind, they could write off that infirmity as simply being a consequence of the parents' mistakes and therefore they're getting what they deserve by proxy, by association. It was actually used as a means of withholding any mercy or compassion. It gave excuse for judgmental attitudes with respect to those who were infirm. That was the way it was misused. That's the way that the Pharisees had taken that scripture and misused it. So from the standpoint of a disciple of Jesus, these men who had grown up in a Jewish culture, it made sense to ask the question that way. Did, did this guy sin or did his parents sin? But you see, it's that second proposed answer that's even more bizarre when you think about it. To suggest that his own sin is responsible for his blindness is odd when you remember he was born blind. How is it exactly that his sin, in in the minds of the disciples, how is it that his sin could be responsible for something that occurred in the womb or before birth? Well, there was actually a teaching in in Judaism at the time, pharisaical teaching, not a biblical teaching, that said that in the womb we have the ability or the opportunity to take on one of two natures. And that one of these natures inclines us toward good and the other nature inclines us toward evil. And so for example if there was a struggle in the womb and the baby kicked the mother that offense against the mother could be evidence of them having taken on this evil inclination and therefore it would be a sin that God could punish through a blindness from birth they would cite for example genesis 25 where you see esau and jacob quarreling in the womb as evidence of how one could have one inclination and another a different inclination and it could even appear as early as the womb that was the pharisaical logic that had come to prevail and led to this kind of thinking. Unbiblical, not truth, but yet powerful in its impact to the thinking of men in that day. So from the perspective of the disciples, what they had been taught, told them that there were two logical explanations for blindness. One was that the man himself had sinned, the other was that the sin had come from his parents. But Jesus dispels both of those in his answer. He declares this man was created blind by God, for the purpose that God may be glorified in him. How does a blind man, a man born blind, glorify God? Remember, in our weakness, God is shown to be strong. You know the scriptures teach us that. Or that it is the case in our weaknesses, we have opportunity to be useful to God so that when we do things of one kind or another to glorify him in obedience to his will, man would not look upon us and say, we did it in our own power but would recognize the power of God in us because of the nature of our miraculous work, of the fundamental underpinnings of our work being beyond our own ability. So, clearly, a blind man, a lame man, somebody who doesn't have all their senses to them or their faculties about them, when those people do great things because of God's power through them, God gains the glory. But more specifically, and I do think what Jesus is talking about here goes a step further, it was always God's plan to bring Jesus into this man's life, on this day, as recorded in John chapter 9, and heal him. And in the moment when this man would be healed of his blindness, then God's glory would be made full in his Son's power to do the healing. Now, that challenges our notion of what God owes us, does it not? In our society today, don't we carry with us this perspective that says, God owes me a life that is full and perfect, God owes me health. God is not kind if he were to be inclined to bring a life into this world that has a handicap of any kind. That's not kindness. That's not love. No loving God, as the phrase goes, would do such a thing, would he not? Scripture stands opposed to that kind of humanistic thought. We are the pottery. He is the potter. He can fashion us whatever way he chooses and in doing so bring it to glory for himself. And as the pottery, we have no place to stand to the Creator and argue with Him over how He chose to make us. That's simply not an argument that even starts, much less finishes. And according to Scripture, we're told this man was born blind and lived an entire life up to this point, without the benefit of sight, and with all the travails that came with that, and with all the misery that must have come with that, and with all the difficulties that came with that choice that God made, so that on this moment, his life could fulfill its purpose. And his purpose was to glorify Christ. Is your life any different than that? Whether you're born perfect physically or not, is our life any different than his life in that regard? Are we not all created to glorify God? Is that not the ultimate and and eternal purpose of man, having been created, to bring glory to God? Absolutely it is. No different than the rest of his creation. So it must be the case that as God looked upon this man and, and chose to bring him into the life that he gave him, this life of blindness... He knew that ultimately, more good could come from his healing in this moment and his recording in John chapter 9 than could have ever come had he been born with sight and lived out a life without knowing his Savior. You have to put things into an eternal perspective if you're really going to appreciate what it is God is about doing in our lives and in the life of this man. I want you to consider this man's condition as Jesus found him. He's born blind, as we've said. He's helpless And more than that, he's probably hopeless with respect to his blindness. He has virtually, if not entirely, no hope that someone could come along and cure his blindness. That there is no chance another man, much less himself, the blind man himself, could ever do anything to correct his own condition. It's a hopeless condition. It's one that, barring some act of God, would never change to his death. He has no hope of ever correcting his own condition. I I, I pause here just briefly to make the point as well for our own sake that we may have some similar kind of handicap or infirmity or limitation. It may not even be physical. It may be emotional or maybe in some other context of our physical being. It may be external. We may have been born into some miserable circumstance with respect to our home life or our economic condition some other kind of ailment that's external, some family condition. Perhaps it's our spouse's ailment which brings us great misery and pain from the sake of empathizing with them or dealing with their condition with them. All of these aspects of living have ultimately at their root a decision of God to allow it, if not do it, and it gives us therefore opportunity to ask, are we using it to glorify God or to simply complain about our condition? Because that's always the choice. This man, I don't know his life. We don't have a record of what he did prior to this moment. But I have to believe, if he's human, that he had days when he looked upon his blindness and shook his fist at God over what had happened to him. And then perhaps I'd like to think there were days when he looked upon his blindness and said, God, how are you going to use this to your glory? What is it I can do, despite my limitation, to bring you glory in what you've done? So there's our question. There's our choice. Ask yourself that as you leave today. With the things that bother you in your life, the limitations, the challenges, the things that make your life difficult or mine, with each of those, have you chosen to approach it from the question of why God, how dare you God, or have you looked at it for what its intended purpose was, how do I glorify you in this limitation? How is my weakness, God, going to be used to show your strength? That's the choice we all have. Well, the blind man, as I said, had no reason to expect his sight. Unless... The one who created him that way were to purpose to change it. Verse 6. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, Jesus did, and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seen. So Jesus initiates the act of healing here. That's obviously the key point in the in the story up to this point, the thing we've all been expecting. But there are several aspects to the way Jesus does it here that are very unique and very intriguing. In fact, they're unique to this and this story alone. There is no other story, there is no other example of healing provided in any of the four Gospels where Jesus chooses to use some physical substance in the course of his healing. This is the only time he does that. Before we look at that, though, I want to make a couple of points about the setting. Did you notice the man never asked for healing? In fact, there's no record in this account of any communication between him and Jesus other than the instructions that Jesus gave in the verses I just read. So it appears as if, as the disciples and Jesus are walking along, they discover this man and they talk about him, to which Jesus then says to the man, here, puts mud on his eyes and says, go wash, and that's it. Did you notice that there was no comment asking, do you want to be healed? The word healed doesn't even come up in the conversation. In other words, from the point of view of the man, one minute he's sitting there, the next minute, somebody's sticking mud on his eyes and then telling him to go wash in a pool. That's all he saw happen, or heard happen, I guess. That's it. And I think this as well is in keeping with God's purpose to bring this man into the world blind from the beginning. God purposed to bring about this opportunity for his son, to demonstrate his power through this man's condition, and when the appointed time had arrived, the man was going to be healed by God's mercy and his initiative and his grace, and nothing the man says, nothing the man does, nothing he even asks prompts the healing. It is solely the work of grace. It is solely unmerited favor God's initiative on behalf of the one who could not solve his own problem. God's initiative on behalf of the man who had no hope to expect the healing until it is that God stepped into his life and did that work of his own initiative. The second, and as I've already mentioned, the more interesting or more intriguing aspect of this is that it was done through this clay applied to his eyes. Now, this unexpected feature in the story has been a source of intrigue for readers of this gospel going back, I'm sure, since the day it was written. Probably going back to the moment it occurred. Because the questions start to pop up in our minds. Was there something supernatural about the clay? Or maybe it was the spittle. Maybe that was it, right? It was the spit that did it, right? Or was there maybe just a special message in it? Is there some underlying symbolic message in the fact that he used clay on the eyes. Is that what's going on here? Well, there is an answer, and it comes later in the story. So you'll have to stick around with me until we get there. Before we go any further in this story, I think it's important at this point to introduce what is fundamentally the point of the story and let it build with us as we go through the rest of it. And that fundamental point, that parallel meaning that's built into this story, into this event is that God has gone through John chapter 9 and the events that are told here and orchestrated them just so, in just certain ways, so that you and I, as we watch what happens to this man, we get to learn a little bit about ourselves. Because you and I have a lot more in common with this man than you may realize. Like him, we were all born blind. Now that may be a surprise to you because you're sitting here staring at me with your eyeballs and last time you checked, it's been that way since you were born, I'm sure. But... Each of us had a birth defect when we were born. We all had at least one. When we entered this world, we entered with a fallen spirit, a fallen nature, a nature we inherited from Adam. David, in his psalm, Psalm 51, David describes his own birth this way. He says in 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And look, he wasn't talking just about himself. He was describing the human condition. He was describing the way every single child is brought into this world. We are all conceived in sin. That is not to say that the conception process is sin. That is to say that the process of new life, of birth, brings into the world a human being whose nature is in the likeness of Adam. Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, death entered through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You were born in the likeness of your parents. If you haven't noticed, your parents had two arms, they had two legs, and a head on top. You had exactly the same. You didn't look like a giraffe. You didn't look like a rhino. It's amazing how the parents always predict the look of the child, do they not? That's genetics. We understand that. But spiritually, it's no different. God, when He created the universe and the world in chapter 1 of Genesis, said that each would produce after its own kind. The word kind in Hebrew, "berim," It literally means of likeness. It means that what you are is what you create. And it doesn't limit a, it's not limited to the physical nature of our creation. It extends into the uh, spiritual realm as well. When Adam and Eve reproduced by design, by God's decree... They were going to produce after their own kind. And their kind, at the time of their conception of Abel and Cain, their kind was a fallen, sinful kind. A nature that no longer could commune with God, that was alienated from God, that by its very nature now was an enemy of God because of sin. Because of their disobedience of God. And that sin has a very interesting quality about it when we talk about being fallen, when we talk about having a nature that is opposed or alienated or an enemy of God, it's not just the fact that we are not obeying Him. It's changed our very ability to perceive Him, to even have a relationship with Him. It prevents us from seeing and knowing God fully. That's what we mean when we say blindness, you know, amazing grace. I once was blind and now I see. Do you think the song's talking about your eyeballs? Well, clearly not. It's talking about spiritually, what it's like to be that fallen natural man, the one that comes into the world. By inheriting our sin from Adam, we enter into a world where although we appear obsessed with finding God, just look outside these walls, there's every manner of attempt to seek out a God or a making of something spiritual. In reality, we are blind to the true God and we will not find Him. As Paul says in Romans, no one seeks after God, no, not one though we certainly seem to be trying. That explains in reality why we end up worshipping gods of our own making. You see, we have this void in us, this recognition that there is a creator, it's innate, it's built in. We're born knowing we should seek after God, but because of our fallen nature, we're blind to the true God. And therefore, we have to make gods of our own choosing, of our own design, to replace the void that God himself has left in our hearts. But of course, nothing of our own making could ever fill a void that is infinite and designed to fit only an infinite God. So we end up with other forms of religions, other gods, perhaps gods of the material world as well, like power, sex, careers, relationships, anything at all to fill that void. And just like that man, in fact, just like his own testimony, if you look ahead in verse 31, he says he had no hope to cure himself that he had no hope that he could cure himself or that any other man could cure his blindness because the only cure for his condition was the one that would come from the creator himself. In other words, in his case, unless God chose to take away his blindness, he was going to be blind till he died. And spiritually speaking, unless God decides by grace to remove the spiritual blindness that Adam and all that came after him have inherited, then we have just as much hopelessness. We will go to our grave blind to the end spiritually. As this man was physically. And so Jesus, after applying the clay, he tells the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man went, he washed, and he gained his sight. Now, I want you to consider this from the perspective of the man himself. We said a little of this already, right? He had never asked to be healed. I'm I'm sure he welcomed it. I'm not saying he didn't want to be healed. But I don't think he was considering that an option in the moment. I don't think he was expecting it. And then the only thing he hears is this instruction, go wash in the pool. Now, there's nothing special about this pool. The pool of Siloam was a relatively insignificant pool in the city of Jerusalem. It's not like the pool of Bethesda. If you know the story from John chapter 5, where they would sit around the pool, the, the cripple and lame would wait for the water to stir, which was a sign that the spirit or the angel of the Lord was at work in the pool. And then the first one who would jump in the pool, we're told in John chapter 5, could, could be healed. That had a very unique significance. The Bethesda pool was very different. This pool, no such significance. It was a nothing pool. Now there is an interesting tie-in because in this week, in the week that's taking place in John chapter 9, you're in the week of the Feast of Tabernacles which in the way it was conducted in the city of Jerusalem involved the priests carrying large cisterns of water up to the temple mount and filling the laver that's located in the holy place within the temple and the water for that laver during this week was always taken out of the pool of Siloam. Not for any specific reason out of scripture, but just out of tradition. So in this one week, Jesus tells the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Why? Well, it had nothing to do with the healing because we've already said the pool itself had no regard, no special significance for that. No, no, no. The issue here was exposure. Because during this one week, the busiest place in the city from the standpoint of religious leaders was the pool of Siloam. Anyone standing around that pool for any length of time would have watched a parade of men all day long coming from the temple. And so anyone who might walk into that pool, wash themselves, and suddenly see for the first time in their life had a wonderful audience to observe that miracle. But this man had a choice, did he not? I mean, again, think about what he knew in the moment. All he knew is some stranger, without any warning, stuck clay on his eyes and said, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, what are his range of options there? You might have assumed, well, of course, he went and washed. Well, that's only because you know how the story ends. If you didn't know that, you would have a real choice, would you not? Would you not sit there, perhaps, and ask yourself, what in the world is this guy doing? What are you doing to me? Get this stuff off my face, right? That's an option. It's an option that reflects an unwillingness to obey this man's word. Because his word was, go do this, and you have a choice. I can obey it, or I can ignore it. But it doesn't presume, it does not presume that he understood what was going on. All it presumes is he heard a word that he was willing to obey. Now at this point we discover the real reason why Jesus used the clay to heal the man in this way. Remember, the man had been born blind. And so when Jesus was performing the healing, he hasn't seen Jesus. His eyes were healed at the moment he applies the clay, I believe. But the nature of the clay is, you're not going to open your eyes till you have a chance to wash that stuff off, are you? By having the clay affixed to the eyelids, what Jesus has done is assured this man that he will not open his eyes until he has walked all the way to the pool of Solomon, which by the way, was down a very steep hill leading out of the city. So he had a very difficult walk as a blind man. It's going to take him some time. Then, when he gets to the water and he washes his stuff off and he opens his eyes for the first time and he sees, well. He's a long way away from wherever Jesus is at this point. He's never set eyes on his healer. He has no idea what Jesus looks like. And that becomes central to the rest of the story. In fact, the whole reason Jesus healed in this way was so that the man couldn't look upon him physically and be able to point to the one who healed. That's an interesting little dilemma, isn't it? Truly, this man was giving praise at the point of his healing to a faceless Savior who he knew only by the Savior's words and not because of some physical encounter that he had through his eyeballs. So now when the people ask for proof, the man is without an answer, frankly. His newfound side is going to continue to puzzle this crowd. That makes sense. We would all have the same reaction, I'm sure. But they now have to judge the truth of what they've seen on the basis of this man's testimony. They won't have the option, because of the nature of the miracle, to chase down Jesus, wherever he is, and inspect him. No, they're going to be left with the physical evidence of a healing, the testimony of the man as to how it took place, and then they likewise are going to be in this interesting situation where they will either take what they hear and believe it on the testimony of the man who is witnessing, or they will reject it. Now, you might imagine that this event would catch the attention of the religious leaders who are walking around that pool, and certainly it did. Chapter 9, verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now, it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed and I see. Well, therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, Well, this man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And then there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. And the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been healed or that he had been blind and he had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, well, we know this is our son. And we know he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So, I don't know how much you've studied the Pharisees out of the Gospels. I had the privilege to study through the book of Luke not long ago, and it's as you know, available for download if you're interested. But in that course of that study, you get a wonderful understanding, a wonderful picture of what really motivated the Pharisees in Jesus' day. What was really behind them? They were a political organization. You might think of them like Republicans or Democrats. They had a particular outlook on things. They had a particular approach to interpreting the Mosaic Law and applying it. They had political power and they did everything they could to protect that power, to keep themselves where they were in charge and on top. And anyone who came along and threatened that power was an enemy, automatically. Jesus fit that mold nicely. And so they opposed him at every turn and opposed his teaching at every turn and threatened the people and intimidated their interest in him and tried everything they could to undermine his teaching. Ultimately, they were instrumental in bringing him to the cross, as God allowed. And these men now reject the healing that has occurred on the basis... Of several things. First, they'd say it violated the Sabbath. Now, under man-made rules, under pharisaical rules, no one could perform a healing on the Sabbath because they considered a healing to be work. Now, that's not a biblical point of view. I don't want you to come away from this thinking that God himself had ever stated that. In fact, Jesus contends with that thinking himself elsewhere in the Gospels. But they, the Pharisees had made this a rule, and they expected everyone to follow it. So they say, their logic goes something like this. This man who's been healed says that his healer was a prophet, but he can't be a prophet. He can't be from God, sent from God, because God would not allow a man to do work on the Sabbath. Therefore, this healer must be a sinner. There were others in the group, we're told, other Pharisees who disputed this logic because from their point of view, a sinner could never be able to perform such a miraculous healing. Now, what's interesting here below the surface is they're not really arguing about whether or not he violated the Sabbath or whether or not he's a sinner. What they're really arguing about here is, was God involved? The real question is, did this come from God? One group says no, because God would never be involved in any work on the Sabbath. The other group is saying, no, certainly... Jesus must be from God because he wouldn't have the ability to perform these miracles if he didn't have God's power behind him. So the real argument here is, what do we think of Jesus? The real question being considered is, who is this man, Jesus? And what do we know about him because of what he's just done? You know, the Pharisees weren't looking for a new God. They, they weren't interested in someone who would come along and offer, them, offer the himself to them as a representative or an emissary of God, much less the Son of Man, much less the Messiah. They had their God. Their God was the law of Moses. Their God was an institutionalized, man-made, distorted version of what God gave on the mount to Moses. And they had turned it into a yoke, Paul calls it, a yoke that had been laid on the shoulders of the people And their own political power came from their ability to manipulate that yoke. To turn the people wherever they needed them to go. To force them into situations where they had to pay homage to the Pharisees or do as the Pharisees said. And through that relationship they gained wealth. The Pharisees were told elsewhere by Christ in the Gospels were lovers of money and did everything they could to enrich themselves out of their position. So these are not men who truly know and trust the the, the living God of Scripture These are unbelievers, if we were to use the common vernacular for for our day. The Pharisees were unbelievers who portrayed themselves as believers and as leaders even. And in that role, they did great harm to the nation of Israel. And as they sit here listening to this man's testimony about a man named Jesus who has the power of God to heal, they look upon that as a threat and frankly, they have no interest because they already have a God that's working out really nicely for them. Thank you very much. So their next tactic is to dispute the man's story. They imply he was never blind to begin with. So they flat out dispute the reality of his healing. And they try to bring the parents in thinking that if they can intimidate the parents on the witness stand, basically, they can get the parents to admit, you're right, he's not actually been blind from birth. But the parents testify to the truth. No, he's been born blind. We know that much. Trust us. And they further testify that he has obviously been healed. That much is also clear. But they stopped short of making any conclusions about the nature of the man who did the healing. And we know why, because the Scriptures tell us why. They were afraid. They were afraid of the Pharisees, and because of their fear, they were not willing to make a public confession of their own with respect to who Jesus was. They left it unspoken. They left it undecided. They said, look, our son's old enough. He can talk for himself. Let him talk, we're not interested in speaking on his behalf, but what they're really saying is this, we are not prepared to make a public affirmation that the man who could heal our son must be from God. Why? Because you are either for Christ, or you are against him. And likewise, you are either for and with the enemy, or you are against him. You know, it's, it's a black and white kind of alternative. There's no gray. There's no in-between. We've said it here before. You're either a believer in Christ or you're not. And even those who would pretend to not have a stake in that argument, to, to not have a dog in the fight, as we like to say, all they've said is, I'm not prepared yet to be on Jesus' side. And by default, I am where I started, a son of disobedience, Paul calls us. The ones who have not yet known Christ and therefore are still blind. Now, I don't know the heart of these parents, but I can tell you from their opportunity to confess Christ, they didn't do it. Finally, we hear the blind man himself now testifying in the latter part of the chapter. In verse 24, he says, it says, So for a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Well, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. You hear the refrain of... uh, Amazing grace in those words, do you not? And so they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Uh, Do you want to become his disciples too? They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well... Here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? And so they put him out. The blind man here, I think, is my hero for more reasons than one, but he engages these esteemed religious leaders, right, in in really something of a debate. And they are here to maintain that the man who healed him could not be from God. He must be a sinner, and therefore this healing act can't be an act of God. That's an important thing they have to cling to, because you have to understand, if they were to give an inch on that, they put themselves in a box from which they cannot escape theologically. They would have to admit that this man Jesus is in fact at least a prophet, if not more. And as men of God, as religious leaders, the standard bearers for the nation of Israel, they would have to come to that prophet and pay homage because that's what they're always teaching. That's what they're always claiming must be the proper response. If only we had a prophet, we would all go and bow down before him and hear the word of God. Since Malachi, there has not been a man to speak to us. And of course, John the Baptist came and proved his authority, but they dispensed with him. Now another has come and is healing and doing miraculous things, but we're going to dispense with him because in reality, they're not interested in bowing down to anyone. They're certainly not interested in hearing from the one true God who, if they were to hear from him, would tell them all of what they're doing wrong. So they have to maintain this position that Jesus is a sinner, not from God, and his healing is not from God. Likewise, on the other side, you have this blind man who, hey, he was there. (laughs) He knows what happened. He's not confused about the facts and he's excited to tell the world about what's happened to him and he's not bowing to their pressure. That's probably the reason more than anything else for why I love this guy so much. He stands in the face of what was very difficult pressure and maintains his witness. Let me tell you folks, when his parents were said to earlier be afraid of being put out of the synagogue, look, some of you in here are thinking, well, that's not the worst thing that could happen to me. Being made not to go to church, that's a free Sunday morning. No, not in that culture. To be put out of the synagogue was not simply a statement about being able to attend the service in the synagogue. It had to do with being a part of the community. It was the excommunication of, of our day, or their day. It was the idea that that person was persona non grata. They were no longer able to do commerce. They were kicked out of their family. Being put out meant being ostracized in the worst possible way. In a small community We had nowhere to go and you were under Roman oppression. So if you didn't have the friends within the Jewish community, you had no friends at all. This this is what came to tax collectors, men who were Jewish who aligned themselves with Rome and agreed to collect taxes. That's why they were so looked down upon. They were traitors. They were ostracized. They were put out of the synagogue. That's what this man had at risk. And you hear in the last verses I just read, they put him out. I believe that's a direct reference to having put him out of the congregation, not merely of their presence. This man had a real risk if he held... The line. And he holds the line. He says several things. He says first, and I love this probably most of all, he says, you're not interested in the facts, are you? You want to pretend you are, but you're not. You don't want to know the truth. You didn't listen to what I told you the first time I tried to tell you. And you're asking again, not because you're confused or you have a bad memory, but because you want a different story. Until you get the story you want, you're not interested in the one I have to offer. They don't want to listen. And then he begins to mock them. And I I have to believe he just couldn't hold back, you know? (laughs) Because I want to do it too, even through the text, you know? He he, he begins, he says, in other words, he's trying to explain why they would ask a stupid question a second time. And so he proposes an answer to them in a mocking way. He says, oh, you're asking again? Well, oh, maybe it's because you want to be one of his disciples. Is that why you keep asking about him? And of course, that enrages them. They see it as a mocking statement. They say, we don't need to be his disciple. We are already disciples. But look who they claim to be a disciple of. Moses. Now Moses was a great man and a servant of God, but Moses is just a man. They wanted to be servants to a man. And they wanted to be disciples of what that man wrote. And their claim for the legitimacy to being disciples of Moses was, Moses knew God. Moses heard from God. So we want to be disciples of Moses. Moses. I don't know about you, but have you ever met someone whose claim to being Christian is founded in their family? My parents were Christian. Well, therefore I must be. Have you heard that from anyone? Do you know that's how I live the first 25 or so years of my life? Had you come to me and said, Steve, I don't think you understand, I, I, I think you are not a Christian, you, you don't know the Lord, I would have been incensed at that, and it would have come principally out of one aspect of my background. I was born into a Catholic family, and by goodness, I'm a Catholic. Which is the same thing, in my mind, as saying I'm a Christian. I mean, they're one and the same, right? That's like saying because I sit in a garage, I've become a car. <laughs> right? You've heard that before? Maybe? It's a false premise. It's a it's illogical. And these men have done basically the same thing. What they've said to this blind man in their in their debate is... We are disciples of Moses. And you know why that's a good thing? Because Moses heard from God. So that means if I'm a disciple of Moses, I'm in with God. It doesn't work that way. I, as a Christian, am saved by faith in Christ, but you can get to know me as well as you want and it won't save you. In fact, it might hurt you depending on what you see on a given day. But the point I'm making here is you're not saved because you know me. You're saved because you know the Savior. Similarly, Moses did not save anyone. And for that matter, neither did the law. But a faith in the one who provided it is a saving faith. That's what is required. And they're citing Moses as their salvation, not God. So that leads the blind man to mock them a second time. He says, isn't this an amazing thing? And I love that phrase because it's clearly making fun of them. He says... You don't know, you claim, you don't know where this healer really came from, and yet you do realize he opened my eyes. And you also know that there has never before been in all of human history a recorded example where some man could heal another man of blindness that he, had, that he has had since birth. Never before had that happened in the nation of Israel. And in fact, in Jewish Talmudic writing, in the, in the writings of the Jewish leadership and, and historians and, and prophets, Not not scripture, mind you, but the other writings that were in their culture. They had come to understand that the Messiah, when he came, would show miracles. And in particular, there were three miracles that only the Messiah could perform. And if you saw those miracles, you knew you were looking at the Messiah. One of them, just as an example, is the ability to heal by removing a demon from a deaf, mute man. Because in Jewish tradition, the only way you could heal someone of a demon was to learn the name of the demon. That's why you'll often see in the Gospel accounts of this practice where they would ask for the demon's name and they would hear the name. Then the exorcist, and there, was, there were men in the Jewish, uh, uh, in Israel, who God had gifted with the power to remove demons from time to time. But the specific way he gave them to do it, according to these Jewish writings was that they had to learn the name of the demon, call on the name, and cast him out in in using his name. But if the man that was indwelt was mute and couldn't speak, you could never learn the name of the demon. And if you couldn't learn the name of the demon, you could never cast it out. Jesus, we know from the Gospel records, casts out a mute demon. Good homework for you is to go back and find that story in the Gospel and look at the reaction of the people in the crowd as soon as they see that happen. And you'll realize this is one of those touchstone miracles that they had been waiting to find and they knew it meant this is the Messiah. This was another one. The ability to heal a man born blind was something God had reserved for his son. He never gave any man the ability to do that so that when it could be done by Christ, it would be a way of authenticating his ministry as the Messiah. So here again, the man is saying to these Pharisees in a word, you know what this means. We know that we've been told that when somebody comes along and can heal a man born blind from birth, we know what that's saying. We've all been taught what to believe and how to look for this sign. And isn't it amazing that you can see it and you don't know who this man is? It's a mocking way of illustrating that they're denying and they're covering their eyes from something that is plainly able to be seen, if only they would desire to see it. How do we cure our spiritual Blindness. If we're born blind at birth, spiritually speaking, what hope do we have to cure our spiritual blindness? How do we, in other words, reconcile ourselves to the God who has made us and yet stands opposed to us because of our sin? I mean, like the blind man, you can't cure yourself, can you? No more than he could have took his own spittle and mud and stuck it on his eyes and walked to the pool could he have made himself see again. No more so can we sit up one day in our bed and decide, you know, today's the day I'm going to cure my spiritual blindness. Today is the day I want to know the true living God. Scripture stands as testimony against that possibility when it says, no one seeks God, no, not one. Not the true God. Not the true living God. Not the one of the Bible. We seek God in our own form, but we don't seek the true one. And obviously, if no one can heal themselves, then there isn't going to be another one we can turn to in this world, another man, in other words, who could heal us. I mean, if we can't even heal ourselves, who could expect that another man could heal us? It's the same problem the blind man had. Unless the one who created us steps into our life by grace and heals our spiritual blindness, we have no hope. Our nature produces the sin that separates us and the sin that separates us blinds us to the true living God and that blindness is a barrier we can't overcome. It's a hopeless condition. But then there's Jesus. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. The, the blind man here, he knew that God had healed him. He's been testifying to that all along. And he knew that whoever this man was, that he has not yet been able to see with his own eyes, whoever that man is that God used to do this work, that must be a great man. He called him a prophet, probably because that's the highest title he could have awarded the man in light of the Jewish tradition. Men from God were prophets. That's the best you could do. When Jesus asks him if he believed in the Son of Man, that term, the Son of Man, comes out of the book of Daniel. It's a messianic term. By messianic, I mean it was a term from how it's used in Daniel that clearly refers to the Messiah. It's speaking about the coming Savior of the world. So when Jesus asks this man, do you believe in the Son of Man? What he's asking him is a very specific question. Are you waiting for the Messiah? Do you believe there will be one? And are you looking forward to his day? And are you ready to believe in him when he comes? That's really what he asked this man. And when Jesus asked him that, The man, in his response, said something very simple. To that he said, I am ready to believe in that person. I just don't know who he is. Do you know who he is? Has he come? Can you point me to this man? And then Jesus tells him, I am the Messiah. He didn't say, I'm the one who healed you. Look at the question. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He didn't say, do you want to know who healed you? He didn't say, can you remember who did the healing? Can you identify him? The question isn't about the physical healing here. He's moved to the larger issue. The one I said is in view really throughout this whole story. Do you believe, do you know the Son of Man? And his answer was, just point him out and I'll believe in him. Just tell me who he is. And when he points him out, the man worships Jesus. You know, in a very real way, we've all been asked the same question. Now again, you and I haven't sat by a pool with mud on our eyes. I know that. But spiritually, we were all born into that state of blindness. And at some point, perhaps most, if not all of us, have had the opportunity for God to open our eyes spiritually and bring us to a faith in His Son. And therefore, we recognized that change. Having recognized it, we recognized it must have come from God. And then in response, we said, Who do I worship? And somebody, somewhere, through the Word of God or through some other testimony, pointed us to Christ and said, The one who saves is Jesus. What you believe about Him determines whether you remain blind or whether you see. But you know, there could be some in here that are like the Pharisees. You know, when Jesus says here at the very end, that I came into the world for judgment, He's speaking here about the dividing nature of the Gospel, about its ability to tell truth from falsehood. Look how He says it. He says, I came so that those who, would not, who do not see may see. Well, that's the reference to those of us who were born blind, but by faith have had our eyes opened now and know the truth and believe in Christ. But look at the second half of that verse. That should have caught your attention. At the very least, it should have prompted a question in your mind. Who is he talking about? Because he says, there are those who see, but they will become blind. The Pharisees were such people. You know, they wouldn't listen to the testimony of the blind man. But why? Remember why? It's because they didn't need what he was preaching. They already had their Savior, did they not? They already were sinless in their own minds. Because they followed Moses and the law and all their distortion of the law, that's their solution. We're good to go. Don't need yours. Thank you very much. In other words, they see. If you really wanted to put the verse I read in John 9 in its proper context, you take quotes and you put them around the word see there in its last instance there where he says that those who, quote, see may become blind. In other words, it's not true sight. It's not true spiritual knowledge. It is the one who walks around acting as if they see, proud of themselves, cocksure, I've got my act together. And in reality, when the gospel comes and they reject it because as the Pharisees did, they have no need of a Savior, then they confirm their blindness. They remain blind, in other words, though they don't recognize it. And they have put themselves in jeopardy. They were already in jeopardy. But having come face to face with the gospel and having rejected it, they stand on the precipice, on the edge Of oblivion. Because the moment that heart stops beating, judgment ensues. It is appointed for each man to die once and then comes judgment. And then Jesus gave them over to that sin. Look at verse 40. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, then you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. In other words, there's a repentance step that precedes the faith that saves. You have to first give up what you've been clinging to. Do you know that's what the world does? All of us at some point before salvation, we had something we clung to. Now maybe it was our own goodness. Maybe it was some other religious system we had been taught. Maybe it was just a hope that nothing bad will happen when we die and we'd rather not think about it. But before I can receive the Christ that saves... I have to be willing to let go of that thing I'm currently clinging to. Because if you don't, here's what you've done. You've said, I've got all these ways to be saved. I, I practice Buddhism and then I like to do a little New Age over here and I watch Dr. Phil. And oh, by the way, I, pay, I always pay to charity when they come around at the door and I don't cut people off in traffic. So that's why I'm going to heaven. Oh, Jesus, he saves too. Well, let him come in here. Add him right here into the bucket. Just bring him on in too. Now I've got that much more to save me. Now, if that's what you've done, then you haven't been saved. Because the essential step of salvation is to repent of all those things you have your trust in and then in place of all of that, say the one and only way to heaven is through the the one door God has made available in Christ, I am going to seize that, rest on that, and in a way, if it turns out I'm wrong, I'm willing to go to the grave with that bet. Now, I'm not wrong, and you know that too. Scripture testifies. But my point is, I don't have plan B. I don't have a backup plan in case this whole Christianity thing doesn't work out. I have trusted in Christ. It's an exclusive kind of trust. It's a relationship that says He's the only way. And therefore all the rest of that junk matters not. Don't be like these evil and condemned men who may have, you may have sat in a church like this or elsewhere for years. I can't tell you how often I have seen men and women come to the Lord and they've been in churches for 30 plus years in their life. And to all their friends, it's the biggest shock in the world to hear them make a public confession of faith and and come to know the Lord and, and then think, I've been in Bible studies with that person. Well, that's the pharisaical way we can approach our faith if we're not careful. We're going to end here now and we're going to end in prayer and go out for our day. And I'm not going to make any specific call on anyone in here to do anything in a public fashion here and now. I believe that faith will prompt a public confession and a public confession will lead to a a baptism for the sake of demonstrating that change in our nature. Some kind of public outward working of that inward change. So I'm asking each of you as we go to prayer today, I'm going to ask for anyone in this room who has heard the words of Scripture and has heard the pleading of God through His Word that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. To know that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that as Christ put it in Luke chapter 12, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. That's the option we have. If you, as you've heard these words, know you have believed and have made that profession, then I ask you to pray for those in the room who may respond or elsewhere as they hear this message later. But if you know in your heart this is the day God has appointed for salvation and you've heard the words perhaps for the first time in a new way and you realize that Christ and Christ alone saves me and not all those other things I was trusting in, then God is lifting the scales from your eyes and all he asks at this moment is that you would do no more, no less than that blind man did and that is testify to what he's done in your heart. And you can do that here this morning as I pray by a simple raising of your hand. So that I would know. So that someone other than yourself would know a change has taken place. And then I would meet with you at the first opportunity and we can talk more. But don't let this moment pass if God is tugging on your heart. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we all pray for the work of the Holy Spirit. Dear Heavenly Father, So many weeks and perhaps even years, we have all sat in churches of one kind or another. We've heard your word preached, perhaps. We may have heard other men or... Women even at times offering an opportunity for us to take a step of faith and believe. For many of us, Father, those were moments that led to us to believe and to step forward. And we now, Father, live in the light of your glory, knowing that by your work we have been counted one of yours. And we are so thankful for that. But perhaps, Father, others, even amongst us now, have been in those same places before, but for whatever reason, Father, they did not respond. They they didn't hear the call. They remained blind. But Father, here this morning, having heard your word again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I call, Father, upon him to do the work of healing in the hearts of those in this room who do not know you. And I pray, Father, they would have the courage that that blind man had. A courage now in this moment, Father, as they consider the words of Scripture to recognize the truth and the call of the Gospel. To stand, Father, for you publicly to make it known that they believe, and then in that belief, Father, to be obedient, to be a witness. So, Father, as we pray with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, hoping and praying for the work of the Holy Spirit, I now call upon any who have heard, who believe, who wish to be a public witness to Your Son and to the power of His mercy and grace, that they believe and trust in Him now, Father, and they would indicate that with their hand in the air, and they would indicate their faith and their desire that He would save them from their sin. I pray, Father, for those who would raise their hand, that that confession, Father, would not end here. It would not be a moment that passes, but it would be the beginning, Father, of a new life in Christ. And that now, Father, you would do a mighty work in them, that confession would be followed, Father, by baptism as a step of obedience, and then following that, Father, a life lived to you, to your glory. Thank you, Father, for this time and your word. May we go out in newness, Father, of the Spirit, to serve you and to give you glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.